How do you do? And welcome to two, episode two, that is, of the Kino Quickies podcast. This podcast is based on live film screenings of 1930s quota quickie films, followed by onstage Q&As at the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey Square, South East London. My name is Dominic Delaghi, and our in-house quota quickie expert is Dr. Lawrence Napper of King's College London. We'll be showing six films between March and May 2022, and at each screening we have a different specially invited guest, and we have some great guests talking about some great films. Great films, you say? Surely quota quickies are famously bad, you say? Well, I say, that's almost true. Many of them were really very bad, but not the ones we've chosen for Kino Quickies. The films in this season may not be perfect, but all of them are interesting, entertaining and a lot of fun. And they're all nearly 90 years old, a bit like me and Lawrence. For full details of films, dates and times, go to KinoQuickies.com and click on the show notes button for any episode of the podcast. You'll find all the details about the season in there and a link from where you can book tickets. Come and watch a film with us. It's great. KinoQuickies.com is the address to go to. And there's some information there too about what a quota quickie is just in case you're not sure. The film we screened for this episode on Sunday 27th of March 2022 was Death at Broadcasting House, which was released in 1934. It's not a spoiler to say that Death at Broadcasting House involves a death at BBC Broadcasting House. Neither is it a spoiler to say that the death in question is a murder, because on the poster for the film, which the audience at the keynote can see, as they enter the auditorium projected onto the screen, it clearly states that an actor is murdered live on air in front of 35 million listeners. Rajar had been invented in those days. There's even a picture of the poor guy getting strangled. Joining Lawrence and I for the post-screening Q&A for this one was one of the curators at the British Film Institute National Archive, Josephine Botting. So, by the magic of recorded audio, let us head over to the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey Square to join the audience who are seated and ready to enjoy Death at Broadcasting House and are all, I can confirm, on the edge of their seats with excitement. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Welcome back. Uh, or well, well, just welcome if you've not been here before. Um, the back would be superfluous and necessary. This is our second film in the Kino Quickie series, Death at Broadcasting House, as you know. Afterwards, we're having a quick Q&A with um, our resident expert, Dr. Lawrence Napper from King's College London, and our visiting expert, Josephine Botting from... Also You're also a doctor, <laughs> sorry, sorry. I, uh, I de-doctored you. Dr. Josephine Botting from the BFI. <laughs> Uh, they're the experts. I'm not an expert. I'm just a bloke who makes podcasts um, and learn things along the way. Oh, and twiddling the knobs is uh, Nick. Not for the first time. <laughs> so, um, Death at Broadcasting House is based on a book of the same name, co-written by Val Gielgud, brother of John, um, and somebody called Holt Marvel or Marvel. I've heard Marvel. It's spelled with a double L, so it could be Marvel. And he's quite an interesting character. We might, we might talk about him in the Q&A. If we don't, I'll put him in the, the show notes. And Val Gielgud in real life was a kind of... Um, he was a radio drama producer, and he's in the film as well, playing a radio drama producer. <laughs> and you'll see... I mean, he's from an acting dynasty, and he didn't pick up the acting talent. I think <laughs> you, you might... Um, John's the actor. And, but Val Gielgud was himself a sort of... He was a pioneer in radio drama. He established a lot of the kind of... Um, 
the kind of language and conventions of radio drama. And when the film came out, Broadcasting House was only two years old, and Val Gilgan, as well as being an advocate of radio drama, loved Broadcasting House. And he talks about it quite a lot in the book with lots of reverence, and he talks about the kind of the Bakelite knobs and everything, he can't get enough of it. And Broadcasting House was this marvel when it, when it first opened. It was futuristic and, you know, it's like this leap into the future. And he was also an advocate of radio drama in that it, people were very sniffy about it when it started. And um, there's a character in the film and the book called Leopold Dryden, who's this very pompous actor. And he, um, he talks in very sniffy terms about radio drama. And we're not supposed to like him. I think that's uh, one of Val's ways of um, putting two fingers up at the critics, as is his forward in the book, which, in which he says, dedicated impenitently by the authors to those critics who persistently deny that the radio play exists, has existed, or ever can exist. So I think that's his way of um, putting two fingers up at critics. So that's it. So after, the, like I say, we'll have a Q&A after the film. Before the film, we're going to watch two trailers for Talking Pictures TV, partly because we love them and partly because they've been very generous and supportive of this season and um, we're contractually obliged to show <laughs> the trailers, which is, you know, but it's, all, it's also a pleasure. And uh, I think that's it. Paul, if you're ready to hit those, I'll press stop and I'll watch the film. Now, as it turns out, the plot of Death at Broadcasting House is a bit more confusing than you might imagine. And afterwards, a couple of people said to me that they didn't quite follow a couple of key plot points. So, as the audience at the Kino settled down to watch the film, let me try to take you through the complexities of Death at Broadcasting House step by step. We begin with a shot looking upwards at the BBC antenna soaring into the sky, then some exterior shots of Broadcasting House looking gorgeous and like the Art Deco ocean liner it was designed to echo. The first few minutes of the film served to introduce us to a long list of characters slash suspects to hint at their histories and to explain the mechanics of this brand new world of radio drama and the technical wizardry behind the broadcasts. The first person we meet is the actor who will at some point be bumped off. It's Sidney Parsons, played by Donald Wolfitt. Here he is in an afternoon rehearsal for that evening's live broadcast of the play, Murder Immaculate. <laughs> Can we have that last sentence again, Mr. Parsons? Do remember you're being strangled. You're not apologising for revoking at cards. I was afraid of overdoing the scream. You certainly didn't do that. It sounded like gargling. Now then, once more, and do let yourself go. Is that you? Got the money? Who are you? Come out of the shadows. I can't see your face. You! Uh, let me go! Let me go! I, I swear I'm innocent! You're, you're strangling me! Ah! Sidney Parsons is alone in that radio studio, so the other voice you can hear is being piped in through a loudspeaker. It's the voice of Julian Caird, the director of the play, played by Val Gielgud, and he's two floors away in the dramatic control room. And this is how radio drama works in 1934. Different elements of the production, musicians, actors, either alone or in groups, gramophones and live sound effects men are all in separate studios dotted about the building, and the engineer back up at the master control panel, fades up the various sources on his panel as required and mixes them together. Here's Val Gilgood as Julian Caird to explain it in a 1934 way. You see, radio drama depends almost entirely upon the proper use of the technique of multiple studios. 
These switches control the light cues in the various studios, and by turning these knobs from left to right, you control the output of each separate independent studio. You'll see at once that's the only way a radio dramatic producer can get oral perspective. By oral perspective, he means that individual studios can be given different acoustic qualities. They can be large rooms, for example, or outdoor spaces or small, intimate interiors. Sorry, Mr. Caird. I suppose I just don't come over well on the microphone. Oh, rubbish. Hold on, I'll come down and show you. I say 6A. Fred, I shall have to hold you up. I'm going down to 7C. Sorry about all this delay, Joan. That's all right, Julian. I don't even get an apology. That was Leopold and Joan Dryden, played by Austin Trevor and Mary Newland. They're a married couple who are both appearing in the play. They bicker constantly, and Leo is a pompous man with a puffed-up sense of his own importance. He's not convinced by this modern business of drama on the radio. How I love these actors! On his way down to give Parsons what for, Caird encounters Herbert Evans from the Programme Research Department, played by a startlingly young Jack Hawkins. There's clearly some existing animosity between them. Hello, Caird. Oh, hello. Sorry you ever tried to produce Fleming's play now, aren't you? Not at all. Why? Oh, Fleming tells me you're a bit nervous about it. I'm only nervous about some of the cast. And it's the last time I ever take your advice on that subject. <laughs> now listen. Oh, I've listened to you quite long enough already. Yes, and I've still got some things I'd like to tell you. And then Caird pops in to see Rodney Fleming, played by Henry Kendall. He's the writer of that evening's play and generally comes across as arrogant and smug. Sorry if I seem to be missing your rehearsal about Rodney. It's this infernal fellow Parsons. Oh, uh, still bad? Worse. Oh, he'll be all right on the night, as they say. I hope so. Joan and Leopold Dryden are safe anyway. Well, so they ought to be. They've got jolly good parts. As Caird gives Parsons notes on how to die more convincingly, we cut to a row of dancing girls rehearsing a tap routine. And we see that there's going to be a lot going on this evening at Broadcasting House. On one network, there'll be a live show coming from the downstairs Variety Theatre featuring these tap dancing showgirls and some popular singers. And on another network, there will be Julian Caird's dramatic offering coming from various studios at the top of the building. Back upstairs, the cast and crew finish rehearsals for the day with instructions to arrive back that evening at 8pm for the broadcast. We then meet Higgins, played by Ivor Barnard, the first person so far who doesn't speak with a cut glass accent. He's a brown-coated studio attendant who is delighted to help Mr Leopold Dryden into his coat. He is less pleased, though, to encounter Sidney Parsons. Excuse me, Mr Parsons, but in future you mustn't bring your things into the studio. There's a cloakroom for artists. Why shouldn't I bring them in here? Those are my orders, sir. In fact, nobody seems to like Parsons. We've already heard Caird criticising his hammy acting. Leopold gives him extremely short shrift and leaves. Before also stalking out, his wife, Joan, stares at Parsons with malice, who smirks back in return. In their hurry to leave, Leo has left his gloves on a chair. Parsons pockets them. Later that evening, there's excitement in the air outside Broadcasting House. Crowds clutching autograph books have gathered, waiting to pounce on celebrities as they arrive. Leo and Joan arrive in evening attire and graciously mingle with the crowd, signing their books. Several real-life big radio stars of the day make brief cameo appearances. Among them, we have the comedian Gilly Potter. Sign my autograph book, please, sir. And mine, too. Has Sir John Reith signed it? No, sir. Has the Prime Minister signed it? No, sir. Then I can't sign it, my boys. Henry Hall signed it, sir. Who? Henry, Henry Hall. Never heard of him. And the crowds encircle another man. This turns out to be Guy Bannister, played by Peter Haddon. 
and he's perhaps not the person they thought he was. You know, I think I should have to get a job with walls. Stop me and sign one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's come very well, hasn't it? Are you broadcasting tonight? Broadcasting? I'm not broadcasting. I'm trying to get in as well in the audience. <laughs> In the grand Art Deco entrance of Broadcasting House, Sir Herbert Farquharson, Director General of the BBC, greets Joan Dryden. Ah, good evening, Mrs Dryden. Well, good evening, Sir Herbert. I see that your husband's being pestered for his autograph. It's a thing I've tried to stop, but it's the penalty of fame, you know. I think my husband enjoys it, Sir <laughs> Herbert. Good evening, Sir Herbert. Ah, how are you, Dryden? Not awfully well. I shall glad when this is over. You'll be listening to our play, of course. Well, I shall hear some of it. There's a performance I must attend in the Variety Theatre, scheduled at the same time as your play. Oh, excuse me. Uh, Sir Walter, Walter Variety. Extraordinary choice of the controller preferring variety to my acting. Yes, he hasn't been educated up to it yet, dear. Guy Bannister, having left the autograph hounds behind, arrives at reception. He's here to watch the variety show downstairs and claims his pass has been authorised by Herbert Evans. After some confusion, Evans confirms this by phone from his office, but in the melee, Bannister wanders off by himself into the maze of broadcasting house corridors looking for the variety theatre. Where's that half-wick gone that I gave that pass to just now? Which one? Can't you do your job without being told everything? Letting people wander about all over the building alone? Why do you expect me to have eyes? We break off from the action here to enjoy a performance by popular singer Eve Beck accompanied by Percival Mackay and his orchestra. The dancing girls are now in full costume, waiting in the wings about to go on. Returning to the plot, Leo and Joan are arguing, although the subject of their Barney is not entirely clear. Leo, for heaven's sake, pull yourself together. Stop prowling about and looking like murder. I look like murder because I feel like murder. And for my sake, try and hide your feelings. For your sake? Ha! I like that. Whose fault is it? I didn't write the letter. Stop. I say, Dryden, what are you doing in here? You won't be in the studio by this time. I'm sorry to hound you, Joan dear, but we've got exactly two minutes to go. Sorry, Julian. A little domestic debate. It's almost time for the virtual curtain to rise on the play Murder Immaculate by Rodney Fleming. Actors, musicians and sound effects men are in position in their separate studios. Julian Caird is at the master control panel with his engineer, Peter Ridgewell. Writer Rodney Fleming is in the 6A listening hall. This is the gallery that overlooks Studio 6A, where the majority of the actors are performing, and he's been allocated this space partly so he can watch the performance and partly because the room has a phone and he's expecting an important business call from his brother in Brighton, who's producing one of Rodney's plays down there. Our simple-minded toff Guy Bannister is still lost wandering around the corridors, frequently bumping into the same woman, Poppy Levine, played by Betty Davis. Not that Betty Davis. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight we present to you a broadcast of a radio play entitled Murder Immaculate. This play has been specially written for broadcasting by Mr Rodney Fleming, the author of two plays now running in the West End of London. The cast is as follows. The husband is played by Leopold Dryden, the wife by Joan Dryden, the guests by Walter Fotheringay and Emilia Dunn, and the wife's lover by Percy Rhodes. The victim, the man who is murdered, is played by Sidney Parsons, and the incidental music is by the Gershom Parkington Quintet. The play is produced by Julian Caird. As the drama gets underway and we know that the murder is imminent, we're taken all over Broadcasting House to see what our key characters are up to at this crucial moment. The variety show is going strong in the theatre downstairs. Evans is burning the midnight oil working in his office. Rodney, watching the actors from high up in the listening hall, receives that phone call he'd been expecting from his brother and settles in for a long conversation. 
Leopold, in the middle of another actor's scene, quietly leaves the studio to go somewhere. Higgins, the studio attendant, although charged with the task of standing outside Studio 7C to make sure nobody enters during the performance, leaves his post and heads down the spiral staircase. Where's he going? An apparent fault with the cue light causes Julian Caird to leave his position and rush frantically down to the studios, where he fails to notice that Higgins is not there. He does, however, bump into Leopold, who definitely should not be out of the studio. Dryden, what on earth are you doing up here? Feeling pretty ghastly. Just came out for air. I should get through, all right. I'm sorry, but you must get back to the studio. You'll be missing your cue. I've never done that, Caird. I remember once when I was Yes, well, tell me all about that some other time. You're cutting it fine. We now come to our murder scene. Parsons nervously waits for his cue. Is that you? As he begins his dialogue, a pair of gloved hands appear from behind him and start to strangle him, and he slumps to the floor. You! Let me go! You're strangling me! I didn't mean it! The timing of his real death fits perfectly with his scripted one. <coughs> Caird has not yet returned to his position, but Parsons' extremely believable death scene meets with the approval of his engineering staff, who exchange a thumbs up. Somewhere else in the building, Guy Bannister bumps into Sir Herbert Farquharson, who personally takes him to the Variety Theatre. The play comes to an end, and much to everybody's surprise, it seems to go very well. Caird is keen to round up all the actors for a celebratory drink in the green room, and to perhaps go on to dinner. He's also feeling bad about being so tough on Parsons earlier in the day. For reasons known only to one of our characters... Parsons has not yet come down to the green room, so sound engineer Peter Ridgewell is dispatched to find him. He encounters Higgins coming back up the spiral staircase down which we saw him disappear earlier. Where have you been, Higgins? Well, I can't... Well, I haven't been away long, sir. You've no right to leave this corridor at all while there's broadcasting going on. You know that. Yes, sir. And now you don't know whether Mr Parsons has gone, I suppose. No, sir, but I'll, I'll find out. Higgins and Ridgewell walk down the corridor and open the door to Studio 7C. There is Parsons, lying dead on the floor. Sir! Stay here. Don't let anyone in on any account. Let's get Mr Kerr at once. So we're just under halfway through the film and are treated to another musical interlude slash few minutes of padding, this time with singer Elizabeth Welch. My time about the actions that I perform the police arrive in the person of Detective Inspector Gregory of Scotland Yard, played by Ian Hunter, and the suspicion of murder is confirmed by a forensic doctor. Just before Inspector Gregory goes up to see the Director General, a partially burnt scrap of paper torn from a drama script is found in the ashtray. Somebody has written something on it. All that can be deciphered is, Your dear Joan. In conference with Caird and Sir Herbert, Inspector Gregory points out that it's a unique case because millions of people heard the murder take place so they can pinpoint exactly when the murder happened and where. Caird has a shocking realisation. I must have passed the door of 7C at the very moment when the murder was being committed. Or was he? Caird was supposedly somewhere in the corridors of Broadcasting House when Parsons met his end, but can he be ruled out as the killer? Could his commitment to authenticity in radio drama have driven him to actually kill Parsons in order to elicit the perfect performance? Another potential suspect is the attendant, Higgins, who appeared to dislike Parsons and was nowhere to be seen at the fateful moment. And what of Guy Bannister, our dim-witted member of the public who claimed to be lost? Was it all an act? And rather than having variety in his mind, did he actually have murder? 
Rodney Fleming, although alone in the listening hall, was on the phone to his brother for the whole time, and we're not sure about Herbert Evans. He'd been working late in his office alone, but his movements during the broadcast are not totally clear. But the obvious suspect is Leo Dryden. He clearly hated Parsons for reasons that are unclear, and had left his own studio around the time of the murder. His behaviour when questioned by Inspector Gregory in the DG's office does not help his case. Do sit down, Dryden. I prefer to stand. Mr Dryden, I only want you to corroborate some statements. I don't propose to give you more than a few minutes. I'm a sick man. But this is very serious, Dryden. Tell me, did you see anything unusual at the time of the murder? Why should I? I left the studio because I felt faint and needed air. Exactly. That's why I asked you if you'd seen anything. No. Mr Caird says he saw you, and we've got to get all the outside facts correct, you know. Oh, yes. I remember Caird did come to hustle me back into the studio, and I did not miss my cue. Any more questions you want to ask can be asked at my own flat in my own time. Gregory continues to question more potential suspects. Higgins' story is that he's having some sort of an affair with a woman who works in the building and that he'd gone to meet her. When Evans is questioned by Gregory about his friend Bannister wandering around the corridors, he dismisses him as an idiot and appears to try to cast yet more suspicion on our most likely perpetrator, Leo Dryden. Good evening. Nothing wrong, I hope. Only that an actor was murdered in the studio tonight. Sit down, won't you? Murdered? Who? Sidney Parsons. What did the Dryden say? What made you ask what the Dryden said when they heard the news? Dryden is so dramatic, even at a tea party. I wondered how he'd behave in a real situation. I see. And so everybody goes home for the night after a long, stressful day. Or nearly everybody. Long after midnight, with a building in darkness, Julian Caird is creeping around Broadcasting House with a torch. Is he engaged in a spot of amateur sleuthing, or is he revisiting the scene of his crime? Suddenly he sees another shadowy figure with a torch, a figure who retrieves a pair of gloves from a cupboard in the corridor. It's Herbert Evans. What do you think you're doing? I might ask you that question. A little detective work. What's your explanation? About the same? I've discovered the murderer's gloves. Whose gloves are these? Dryden. Are you seriously suggesting it was Dryden who committed the murder? I'm convinced of it. What about yourself? Funny you're leaving the control panel just at that moment, wasn't it? Just about as funny as that you should have happened to be working here late tonight. The following day, the inspector visits the Drydens at home. Leo is still, apparently, too ill to see anybody, so Gregory confronts Joan with some damning evidence found during a search of the victim's flat. Mrs Dryden, since last night I've been making a lot of inquiries, and I understand you and your husband had a quarrel before the broadcast. That's not entirely unknown between happily married people. Then you did have the quarrel? Yes. About a letter I received that irritated my husband. Who was the letter from? Some unknown admirer. I don't even know his name. Then what about these letters? Written by you and found in Parsons' flat. I swear these letters had nothing to do with the quarrel last night. Does your husband know about these? No, Inspector, nothing. Do believe me. I only lied to you because he must never know. So it looks like the cause of Joan's dislike of Parsons is that he was blackmailing her over something. This makes the case against Leo even stronger. Dispatching the man who was blackmailing a fellow's wife would be a very clear motive indeed. Under pressure from his boss to arrest Leopold Dryden without delay, Gregory still feels something is being overlooked. While smulling things over with the chaps at Broadcasting House, Peter Ridgewell, the sound engineer, suddenly has a moment of inspiration. Mr Keir, wasn't that play recorded on the blackphone? Because if so, we can hear the dead man's voice as often as we like. I never thought of that. Now, what is this blatnophone exactly? It's a steel tape on which we record programmes, mostly for Empire Relay. Ah, that's interesting. Can we hear it now? I expect so. Four men seat themselves in listening hall one to listen to the grisly blatnophone recording of the murder. 
Rodney Fleming, Julian Caird, Inspector Gregory and Peter Ridgewell. As the clip is repeatedly played, Ridgewell thinks he hears a clue. Do you hear that slight tapping sound? Yes, what is it? Oh, that surface noise on the steel tape. Who are you? I Come don't think so, Mr Caird. I can't see your face. I think it's a watch, worn either by Parsons you... or the murderer. Let me go! You're strangling me! I didn't mean it! Let me go! You're strangling me! <coughs> Isn't that enough, Gregory? I can't stand anymore! Gregory clears the room and interrogates the supercilious Fleming. I just want to make sure of the time and length of the telephone call. Yes, well, I can't be quite certain of that. Except that I remember Julian popped his head in while I was speaking and murmured something about lights. But, of course, you can check that up at the exchange. Mm. And your brother was discussing your play, which he's managing at Brighton? Yes, I think so. All the time. Oh, no, wait a minute. He, uh, he did mention something about weather, but uh, only with regard to the box office. As Gregory's investigation gathers pace, Higgins, the studio attendant, is cleared of blame as the girl confirms his alibi. And then, in a dramatic development, Leopold Dryden is arrested and Gregory sets off for Brighton where he talks to Rodney Fleming's brother, who confirms Rodney's alibi that he was on the phone at the time of the murder. As more alibis are confirmed, the list of possible suspects is shrinking, leaving Leo well and truly in the frame. But despite everything pointing in the direction of Leo, and even though he's currently under arrest, Gregory is still reluctant to take the step of charging him. He visits the commissioner one last time. The more I think about this case, the more worried I am. What is going on in your mind? Well, there's a thing at Broadcasting House called a blatnerphone. It records on a steel tape, and it's possible to hear the man Parsons murdered as often as you like. What do you want? Permission to have a reconstruction of the crime with all the suspects. It's unusual at this stage. It's unusual to have an opportunity of this kind, sir. Let me try it. All right. When? Tonight. Back at Scotland Yard, the idiot Bannister arrives with Poppy Levine, the woman he kept bumping into at Broadcasting House. She's his alibi and his innocence is therefore established. They're just about to leave Gregory's office when... Anyway, why should I try to find the murder of a little rat like Parsons? You knew Parsons? Oh, uh, only slightly. When and where? Oh, in the touring company years ago. What was the company? Oh, dear, I don't know. Oh, come now, you must remember the play. Um, I, I think it was called We're on the Rocks. If it wasn't called that, it certainly should have been. Who was in the company besides Parsons? That's what struck me as being so funny. Mrs Dryden was. Of course, she wasn't Mrs Dryden then. Was she a friend of Parsons? Oh, Lord, no. Nobody was. She was supposed to be a bit gone on another fellow in the cast. So the story behind the Parsons blackmail plot against Joan Dryden may go back to this play they're in together, We're on the Rocks, long before she married Leopold. Gregory visits Joan again. When Joan is called away for a phone call, it turns out to be Poppy Levine. Well, I thought I'd better ring you up and let you know. I hope I haven't done anything out of place. And you know what Scotland Yard is. It's ever so difficult to keep a secret. Taking advantage of Joan's absence, Gregory, in a move that was probably not approved police procedure even in 1934, quickly scans her bookshelf, locates and steals the programme for We're on the Rocks and slips away. When Joan returns, she realises the programme is missing and that Gregory has nearly pieced together the story behind the blackmail plot. It's 8pm at Broadcasting House and Gregory has the place surrounded by plain clothes officers. We are expecting the identity of the murderer to be revealed after his reconstruction. It's just after 2.30pm at the Kino Cinema and the breathless audience is about to find out who done it. But I don't want to spoil that for the podcast listener, so I'm going to pull away now before revealing the exciting conclusion. 
I would heartily recommend that you watch Death at Broadcasting House, but if you can't wait to find out who strangles Sidney Parsons, I will reveal the identity of the dastardly killer at the very end of the podcast. But before that, though, I can see that our crack team of highly trained audio specialists have set the mics up at the Kino, that the audience are clutching their refreshments that have been expertly poured by the crack team of beverage specialists in the bar. Time to go back there now to have a chat with Joe Botting, Lawrence Napper, the lovely audience and myself about death at Broadcasting House. So thank you for coming back. Oh, you came back. That's good. <laughs> People seem to enjoy it. Yeah. Hooray. Good. Good. I heard the word great then as well. I don't know who said that. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you, Joe, for coming. Thank you for giving up Mother's Day to come to uh, Bermondsey. <laughs> you do screenings, don't you, on Tuesday evenings? Is it every Tuesday evening? No, it, once a month. Once a month. That's BFI. At BFI. Yeah. BFI. And yeah. interesting, obscure, old films from the archive. Have you ever done Death of Broadcasting House? I haven't, no, because it's actually been out available for some time. The films I show are ones that you can't see anywhere else because we have very rare prints in the archive. Okay. It's a film I've seen. Um, what are your general feelings about it? Do you like it as a... You know, quota quickies are what they are. You know, we all know that <laughs> <laughs> they were made cheaply and quickly. You know, they're, they're fascinating as cultural artefacts. You know, and I, I do love this film. It's a lot of fun, and it's great seeing it with an audience because, okay, we laugh a bit at the funny accents, and you know, there are, there are quaint things about them that, you know, probably wouldn't have been funny at the time. But at the same time, I think you know we all enjoyed it, and it's you know the screenings that I do, people you know really enjoy seeing as Talking Pictures TV has been offering people mm. for some time, and it's really tapped into a great interest in, I think, not just in old films. But in looking at our, our heritage and our past and society as it used to be, albeit in a fictional context. Yeah. So I do really like this film a Does lot. Does it count yeah. as a quota cookie? Because it, it, it doesn't, it, it's, it feels quite lush in some ways. Well, I mean, my guide is usually to, to look at the book, the Quota Quickies book by Steve Chibnall, and it's not in there. I don't know if that means that it's not a quota quickie. I did find in the cuttings from the time the articles that came out. So it was quite well reviewed. I mean, it was re reviewed in quite a lot of the newspapers, which actually, quota quickies weren't always because they were programme fillers. So the fact that it got quite a lot of reviews in the main newspapers maybe says something about the way it was released. I mean, you'd look, need to look at the release pattern to know, really. But it was it cost £16,000, which was not a lot relative to most big budget films. I think it was The Telegraph that mentioned it. It said it only cost £16,000. It looks great for £16,000. It looks better than some films that cost £30,000. That is more expensive than a typical quota quickie, isn't it? Yeah, it's a lot more expensive than the ghost camera was. Yeah. From the screen, you can see that it's more expensive than the ghost camera. I mean, yeah. I think you said last time, didn't you, a pound a foot was kind of what people said. So give or take. Yeah. And it's a 5,000 5, foot film, this one. You've read the book, haven't you? Oh, I've skim, skim read, read the, the book, yeah. And how close yeah. is it? Val Gilgood is obviously in the film, and uh, Holt Marvel, whose real name was Eric Mashevitz, they worked at the BBC together from the 20s. So Eric Mashevitz was editor of Radio Times from the mid-20s, and he employed Val Gilgood. So they were obviously chums. I think they were called the Variety Twins or something <laughs> later on. They obviously got on very well. And it feels like the novel was... A lot of it was to write about the BBC. I mean, you know, it's... This year's the centenary year of the BBC, so it's a really nice moment to be talking about this film, I think. The BBC was only, what, 12, 11 years old at the time that this film was made, mm. probably. So, But it had already become such a part of British society and culture 
And I think that's what's really fascinating about it. On the poster that's about your head, it says the murder was heard by 35 million listeners. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm again... I'm not sure that's... Well, it might, I suppose it might have done had they done the Empire broadcast, but I think probably they wouldn't have broadcast it to the Empire, given that it had an actual murder yeah. on the tape. <laughs> they may have thought that was a little bit too, too much. But, but, the, so, but I think that the novel has loads and loads of stuff about their own ideas about British society at the time. There's some wonderful stuff about two young men who are obviously communists talking, and, and communists are men who only shave every other day and <laughs> wear shabby clothes and don't brush their teeth and things like that. But commenting on the fact, oh, isn't it ridiculous that, that men wear evening suits to go on the radio? You know, what's that about? So there's all these little asides of stuff about the culture of the BBC, I think, which, which was obviously partly what they wanted to to communicate through the novel. I mean, there's obviously a lot missing in the film because you've got all the variety acts in the film. Yeah, <laughs> the variety acts are audience people. The fact that the, the story kept getting stopped to go and have a musical interlude, was that a good thing or bad thing? Do we enjoy that? Did you? <laughs> dancing like dancing? Dancing in the costumes. And the close-ups. Oh, sorry. I, I, I should say as well, we do have a roving mic. If anybody wants to comment or butt in... Nick will furnish you the mic. And you're a big fan of padding, aren't you, Lance? I love a musical turn, <laughs> yes. I think it's absolutely essential, actually, for this film, because it really... I mean, I think if it was just the detective stuff, it would sort of pall a little bit and get a little bit boring, but you get these little, you know... And also you get that sort of... I mean, there's almost like a sort of sense in which the film is kind of saying, oh, yeah, these boring dramas, everybody, but check out the variety, because, you know, at the very end, you go back to the variety yeah, stuff and you're kind of reminded yeah. of, the, of the people who've been featured... Yeah, but so. what's really fascinating about that last little moment is that it's a microphone and the image is in the microphone, <laughs> almost like a little television screen, yeah. which is really interesting, I think. So, again, they're bringing all this... Because TV was bubbling under at that moment. Yeah. In fact, quite, quite a few years before yeah. that, TV was a distinct possibility. So it's sort of trying to bring all those things. And obviously all the theatrical references as well. So there's a lot going on. And, and obviously I think it's a real reflection of the world that they were living in that they wanted to to bring to life for, for an audience in different ways. There's loads of people in the film who appear momentarily, like Hannon Swaffer. Yeah. And these, I mean, were they big names at the time? Yeah, I mean, that's a fascinating thing about it. You know, they just literally, I mean, Hannon Swaffer is one of them, and he, I don't know much about him, but he was interested in spiritualism, wasn't he? Was he a yeah, journalist, yeah. I think? Yeah, he was a big newspaper columnist. And I guess, I mean, quite a few of those people who like, you know, the people who are collecting the autographs, you get, it's sort of like, anyway, so, you know, you get to, you're going to get to see some people that you're familiar with from the radio. Ta-da, and here's Hannon Swaffer. Yeah. And he would have been familiar for the, from the talks department, I presume. And that, that they are sort of going in to give talks, him and Gilly Potter and yeah. Vernon Bartlett. What a great name. Yeah, Vernon Bartlett's a really interesting one because he's the one who delivers the news about Germany and France. But he was actually dropped by the BBC because of his sympathetic attitude towards Germany. So it's oh. fascinating that he's there more or less talking about how Germany needs to be accepted back into Europe, you know, at a time when <laughs> things were going on that you know, led to the Second World yeah, War. Yeah, because that's like a, a talk, isn't it? I thought it was news initially, but it's a talk. No, it's it's yeah. very it's odd that it's put in there, and it almost feels quite a deliberate political statement but, in but the it's middle also, of this film. It's also really weird. I mean, I haven't been able to work this out, but he's dropped by the BBC because he isn't beastly enough about Germany. Yeah. And then later on, he becomes part of a political movement which is about anti-appeasement movement. 
Yeah, they're arguing that there should be uh, a new government and kind of get rid of appeasement. And then later on in the in the war, he's part of Commonwealth, which is a political party which basically is trying to get elections back in. You know, even though we're fighting a war, they want to get rid of the national government and and go back to kind of the party politics of the previous. So he's sort of he's kind of left and it's it's weird. Yeah, well, I guess people what... did change their minds yeah, over that certainly. decade, but I mean, yeah, it's it's that's a really. I thought that really, that to me really stood out in the film because mm. you talk about the variety act, and that kind of makes sense. And and certainly, within the context of the plot, you know, the variety show is, is part of the yeah. part of the narrative. But but that 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 just seems to be plopped in for some strange reason. Do we know at all what the BBC's involvement or attitude was, or is there any sense of if they approved of it? Or I, I assume they would have told the BBC <laughs> they were going to make this film. Because it's, yeah. not, it's not shot into, in, inside the building, is it? No, I mean, they recreated the whole thing, presumably quite faithfully. You know, I, I think it was Ealing Studios it was shot. I mean, it is all quite impressive, but it seems to be done with lighting and angles, and like, they haven't spent a lot of money on the set... Well, they're fairly basic sets, really, aren't they? I mean, it's a studio. Not much you can do with it, which is probably why it didn't cost very much money. Because yeah, they're, they're sort of corners of rooms, aren't they? And actually, you yeah. can really... You, you know, I mean, the thing about the broadcasting house, of course, is they're all quite small rooms because they're like studios. Mm. And so you can have a few corners of rooms and you can just have a horizontal line suggesting a bit of Art Deco design. It's like, Bob's your uncle. You've done yeah. the Yeah, I, the I think I think that, that made the, the you know, kept the budget down, probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fairly basic sets. I have here... Part of the too many questions. Checks his notes. <laughs> which I'm going to show. No, 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 I've got ah. lots of questions, but also. Ah, uh, yes. Because this doesn't. A picture. A, a key point of the film is the Blattner phone. I'm holding a picture now of the Blattner phone, which is a very early tape recorder. But it's a bit weird that they talk about it and they never even show it. The, the, but this was a very expensive piece of equipment. The BBC had one or two at that time. Yeah. There was no way the BBC was going to lend their Blattner phone <laughs> to this, no, this very... But it's a fascinating piece of equipment because so it recorded on steel tape, literally tape made of steel, and 20 minutes took one mile of tape. Yeah. <gasps> And the only way you could edit it was with a spot welder. <laughs> you literally had to cut it and weld it back yeah. together. And it's just like, it's like a three miles of razor blade going around at high speed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But again, that's a really nice sort of bit of information for the audience. Oh, what's that? You know, and you sort of... Yeah, you'd think because the, the audience at the time were being shown their favourite radio celebrities and how it all works behind the BBC. You thought you might have shown them a Blackner phone, at least a picture of it or something, you know. I don't know how you'd integrate that. I've got a picture of one here. I don't know how much yeah. that would work. Some but, chaps in know. brown coats. <laughs> I mean, maybe the BBC said, no, you're not coming near our Blackner phone. It's with its spinning razor blades. Yeah. So we've got some quite interesting people involved with the production. Anybody in particular you'd like to talk about? I've got a few people I want to ask you about. Well, one person who's not even credited, actually, who's quite interesting, is poor old Ridgewell, who's got a little part. Yeah. And he's the knob twiddler, mm. basically. And which he's on Nick. As they hey. describe, <laughs> described in the novel as uh, like an organist, you know, mm. <laughs> playing his, uh, his dashboard. And that, this is an actor called Bruce Lister at the time, who actually went on to become really successful in Hollywood. He went off in the late 30s, became Bruce Lester... And he was never a leading man, but he had a very, very successful career in Hollywood. So, and in fact, he's one of two actors in this film who went to Hollywood. Ian Hunter, who plays the detective yeah. inspector, he went off in the mid-30s to, and had a very successful Hollywood career. And, and the fascinating thing about this film is that 
I mean, I think it might have been exported. Did it not have an American title? Did you? Tell me it, it had an American title, which was "Death at a Broadcast." But then, who who in America would have had any relationship to this film? I mean, it's so British, <laughs> so British, but it's yeah. so British. And actually, one of the criticisms of the one of the critics in the papers said, "Well, it's just it's too British. It's too British because cinema, in order to be successful, had to emulate Hollywood." And it was actually a criticism that it tried to bring too much of British culture into the film. But this is a quote a quickie feature, wasn't it? That the, the Britishness of them. And I mean, I don't think that many quote a quickies were probably exported. No, I don't think. I mean, I think almost none. Yeah. 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 Why this is why I suspect this probably. Uh, I, I think we're cheating putting this in the season, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Shh. Don't it's say definitely that. a low-budget film. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. You can imagine the Americans going, what? What are no, they saying? Bad. Yeah. <laughs> Alan Swaffer. I don't know. I just, I can't see it getting, being very successful abroad at all because it is, it's, it's doing, trying to do something very specifically British. A lot of the point of the film is about sort of saying, you know these people from radio, now you yeah. can see them. Mm. Yeah, Although the they would, they, they, the they would have seen them on their cigarette card. Uh, books, that's true, that's true. Yeah. They had <laughs> the little cigarette card books, didn't they? I mean, I think it's really fascinating that radio was developing at this time because obviously silent film was had reached its sort of apotheosis I guess by the by the mid 20s it was yeah. starting to refine its feet at which point sound came in but you've got silent film as a way of propagating drama which actually was pretty rubbish at conveying drama in some ways so you got so you got Michelle? image image with no sound yeah because if you really want to convey say a drama a, a stage drama on film with no sound, you've got to do it in very lengthy titles, which, which didn't flow. It was hard to watch. But at the same time, radio drama was really developing something amazingly special, and it was in people's homes as mm. well. So as you say, you could close your eyes, and you were immersed in the drama. And again, this shows you how they do it. You know, the, the, the oars with the paddle in the water and the, the sound of the gulls. And, and I just think... It was so immersive, radio drama. I just think it, in a lot of ways, it was much more successful as a way of conveying drama than silent film. I mean, I suppose just kind of on on the back of that, not that I would agree with you about silent no, films' failures to convey we drama. We can argue about but, that. <laughs> but um, there's a sense in which one of the things that early sound films and one of the things that quota quickies actually are often criticised for is just like filming like they're filming a stage play so they're not particularly cinematic they just like plonk the actors in front of the camera and like they behave like they're on the stage and I think this is a good example of a film that really doesn't do that you know it's, it, it is cinematic in quite kind of extraordinary way and it works through editing it doesn't work through that and, and even in terms of some of the scenes they're split up in a way that in a way that's quite sort of full-on really I think the editing yeah. is quite yeah, well, it was like this little sequence with the dancing where they, they do that yeah. kind of like yeah I've not seen anything of that time at all so, but of course, and of course the, the cinematographer Gunter Krampf was Austrian who'd come over to the UK uh, and he'd worked on some amazing silent films over in Germany uh, and, and there's a fascinating moment actually which I only noticed this time so when Caird is showing Parsons how to die basically <laughs> you know and, and there's a close-up of his hands and Gunter Kramp actually worked on the hands of Orlack and I just thought oh my god yes, you know, this is this so because of the way the sets are very bright and very open I don't think there was much scope to do interesting shots but he did he did everything that he could 
I, I think, think they did like sticking the microphone in the way in between yeah. the yeah, so I think there's a sort of graphic sense to the shadows of the musicians on the wall he did a lot with limited resources yeah the shadows on the wall of the band is fantastic and then shooting through that sort of curved metal door in the in the flat of Joan Driver I mean I think that sequence is particularly impressive that where she's on the phone and then Poppy Levine in the phone box with the guy behind sort of like waiting and it's just it's like a couple of seconds and it's a single image and it really conveys that idea Joan Dryden, played by yes. Mary Newland. Yes. She was a f- silent film star, wasn't she? She, Yes, yeah, she had been in the silent... And Under I think you name. can kind of tell. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The way she's... And her husband, who's the director, yeah. she's shot Reginald all the Denham. time. She stands yeah. out. So he, he, he just shoots her as though it's a silent mm. film. There's kind of weird close-ups she, and... She didn't make that many sound films, Mary Newland, but I think almost all of them were directed by her husband. Okay. <laughs> so that kind of made me... Um, but her career ended, and she, then she, well, they split up then. So she, her and Reginald Denham split up. And she actually then ended up marrying Reginald Denham's writing partner, mm. Edward Percy. So there you go. Keep it in the family. We probably need to finish in the next five minutes or so. But um, Donald Wolfitt. Yes. <laughs> what do you think of him? <laughs> well, I think it's fascinating that he's playing, he's cast as an actor who is underplaying a role. Given the <laughs> ham that Donald Wolfitt became, the fact that he's being told to, you know, come on, <laughs> inject a bit more feeling into it. Uh, I think he's quite good in it, actually. I think he's not too bad in this. I've seen him doing some terrible acting in other well, films. Yes. But I think he's particularly yes. good when he's looking a bit nervous before he starts. He, I really feel his kind of anticipation as he's waiting for the light to come on, you know. I and, mean, of course, that was early in his career, in yeah. actual fact, wasn't it? Um, so he hadn't quite developed him to the, the ham. That Although he, had, he had already by this stage got got into this feud with Val's brother John. Now, do you know about this? Or not only what you've told me. I've got yeah. I mean, I've got a quick summary of this. Bring it on. Which <laughs> is that um, Donald Wolfitt and John Gielgud. It's talked about as having, as having this rivalry, but actually it wasn't a rivalry. It was just a grudge on the part of Donald Wolfitt towards John Gielgud. I don't think John Gill was anything particularly against Donald Wolfitt. He was a raging homophobe as well, and he, and he, which he used in general against people, also specifically against John Gielgud. And he had this famous quote where he said, the um, British theatre is controlled by an international cartel of poofery. Which is true. Which is true, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so what? But... Um, Absolutely, here, here. Where would we be? Without the international poof. Yeah. But apparently it started from when, about three years before this film, when Donald and John were in a play together and Donald Wolfitt suggested that they alternated roles. Uh, So I say, I don't know what the play was, say it was Othello and Gilbert's playing Othello and he's playing Iago and he said, oh, shall we we swap night by night and one night I can play Othello and you, you can play Othello? And Gilbert basically said, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> kind of understand. Yeah, no, no, no. And that was it. That was a lifelong grudge. I mean, I did read that Wolfitt sort of resented his public school kind of education and stuff as well. Yeah. Maybe he had, I guess he had a bit of a chip on his shoulder. I mean, he wasn't a popular figure, Don no, Wolfitt. And, and obviously him. the dresser, the play, was written about yeah. him. It's interesting that in this film as well, he plays not a very popular actor. Well, yeah. you do wonder whether that <laughs> yeah. was kind of... I mean, that, that occurred to me that possibly Val put him in there as a kind of sort of in-joke yeah. or something. I would like to just mention Peter Haddon, if I may. Who's, oh, yeah. Who's Guy Bannister. Mm. The, the silly ass. I mean, literally called the silly ass in the reviews. And it was interesting because 
you were laughing at him quite a lot. The audience seemed to enjoy his performance. I just, I find it actually certainly watching on the film on my own quite excruciating yeah, <laughs> his performance. But the reviews all were saying he's the best thing in it. Yeah. Um, and that he got a standing ovation at the trade show. <laughs> so, which I find absolutely fascinating. It's interesting because, because I mean, silly asses were super popular, weren't they, in this yeah. period? As a figure, like this, if you think about the like the main character in the Ghost Train, where he's like a silly ass and yeah. he turns well, spoilers, but you yeah. know, he yeah. turns out not to be a silly ass. He's in disguise. But that idea yeah. of the silly ass is a real thing of this period. Very much so. But he's in mm. it an awful lot. <laughs> yeah, he's not in the book. Well, no, the guy Bannister in the book is the person who it twiddles the, the sound. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't quite know why they did that. But, but he, I mean, he, again, he's an interesting actor, and he was the first actor to play Lord Peter Whimsey on the screen. Yeah. Another silly Ooh. ass quiet <laughs> figure. But, but he's very good in that. Yeah. He's very good. It's actually on Talking Pictures. You can see it called The Silent Passenger. It's well worth watching. Very silly ass, well. capital S, capital A. I mean, as in, no, that's no, an no, actual title. Oh, no. Since we talked a little bit about, like we mentioned television, uh, I think it's sort of interesting to think about this film in relation to a whole range of other films which really sort of like predict television or sort of imagine television and use that as a way of having the excuse to have a series of variety turns so if you think about one of the early british films l3 calling mm. which imagines television in this kind of way i think um there's also a film from this period uh, radio parade of 1935 which sort of i mean is again set in the radio and does that sort of thing where it's like here's a whole load of acts that you might be familiar with but also has a sort of nod to television and then later, there's another quote a quickie called she shall have music which stars jack hilton and there's a whole sequence about like here's here's a new invention that i've got and it's on a wristwatch in this film it's like they imagine wow. being able to watch the telly on a wristwatch <laughs> But it, again, it's <laughs> like this radio and television are really linked, and yeah. they are—they're, yeah. uh, you know—they are the subject of quite a few British films of this but, period. But of course, that whole idea of doing a variety show with comedy and act is—is theatre. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the musical basically. Mm. So they're just translating that kind of program onto a film, and as you say, you get to see people. So not everybody could get to the theatre, or you know. Yeah. Could, could see those acts if they were, you know, West End based or whatever. So it allowed people around the country to see the new West End shows, which Elstree Calling actually did. Yeah, it had a new Jack Halbert yeah, show yeah. from the stage onto the screen so people could see it. Yeah. So Anything from the audience before we wrap oh, yes, up? Yes, I have a question. Got the roving microphone here. I was just going to say, I was amazed <laughs> they didn't film that in BH. I mean, it was just, it, mm. I just was absolutely convinced that they just had free reign of the entire place. <laughs> um, so I thought that was fantastic. And look, the editing as well w yeah. was very cinematic. It was very mm. tight because I, yeah. I always noticed those sort of, um, you know, jumps between between the you know, people standing up and there's their expression going on to the next bit. All that was very tight. So, yeah, I mean, for a, for a tight budget film, you know, the outside Broadcasting House, was that a set as well? Because you weren't seeing the traffic, you just the close ups were a set. Yeah, yeah, the close ups. And I love that line at the end where do these stairs go? Stairs, where do you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, was, that was. There weren't that many funny lines in it, has to be said. Some of the jokes were a little bit lame, mm, bit I wrong. thought. But um, they had its moments. I saw a hand up over there. Mark. Oh, brilliant. Oh, wow. Actual hand. I was quite intrigued by the, the dancing girls because they were all dressed up, made up, and it looked like they were being filmed, and there was a sort of an interval when the um, the screen seemed to be flickering and that suggested to me early television because it had a low a low frame mm -hmm. rate and yet 1934 is before TV started so can you shed any light on that? It's not much the, the, the flickering, I think that's the bit we were talking about before which is this 
like eighties pop video yeah. thing. Um, I think that was just somebody going to town on, on the edit. Yeah, I think it? it was just an attempt to not just shoot people dancing in a in a boring way as yeah. you would to give the impression that it's like going through the microphone. But also, yeah, it's maybe, a single yeah. frame, isn't it? I was like, they they seem to be single frame cuts. Yeah. To make that flicker. Yeah. Which yeah. would have been as. As Dom suggested earlier, it's like that's really laborious in 1934 yeah. to actually produce that effect. Yeah. Uh, when you did do you do watch um, reproductions of early TV from 1936, it it does look like it's flickering like that. It does a bit look like that's that. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the other yeah. thing that you might say as well, like why are they all dressed up and uh, dancing in a radio act? <laughs> this yeah. seems quite extraordinary, and it's sort of slightly explained because obviously in the broadcasting house itself there's a theatre, so there's a sort of live audience for that performance. But still, who thinks? Oh yes, I know what we'll do for this radio show. We'll have a pianist and a load of tap dancers, and that'll be that'll make great radio. It's like really, it must have sounded absolutely horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> a, a mic above a stage of people. But again, <laughs> but then the dancers were in your head, so that's. Yeah. All right, you just so imagine can... the dance. <laughs> I like the way they'll give a, a wink to the camera as they go by as well. <laughs> they were making the most of Ethel their second the... on screen, yeah. weren't they? I'm going to waste that. There's a nice little reference in the book, actually, about, um, oh, the variety show went very well that <laughs> evening. There were no such problems as musical acts ringing up and saying they were going to be late because their stage show had overrun, or comedians who'd strayed from the carefully censored scripts and, and told yeah. a slightly blue joke and shocked the people in the suburbs. <laughs> so yeah. those are obviously little references to things that... That, that, they, happened. That, that happened. Was it the Green Book that you said the BBC? There was loads of things you couldn't, you couldn't refer to, um, like, travelling salesman was a... You weren't allowed to say travelling salesman because that meant... That, <laughs> that meant, meant kind of, like, rumpy-pumpy, yeah. <laughs> Goodness me. Yeah. Wow. Uh, anybody else before we...? Um, didn't the rules come in about 1943 or something about the jokes? Sorry, I might be wrong about that. I don't but, you know. know. There, was a, there was a book that said what... The Green Book. The Green Book. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there was... It was a bit later than this, because I think the 30s but, but the, was yeah. really loose, actually. Well, the book, the novel, the original novel written in 32, says that the comedians had to submit the scripts beforehand and they were censored. But obviously, in the moment, <laughs> they could go off script, and that yes. did, apparently did happen. Because I was thinking about the costumes, because the costumes are quite loose yes. as well, in the way that a bit later on they weren't allowed to show that much bosom and, you know, that much sort of unstructured design, should we say, and those mm. ladies' legs. <laughs> it would be a bit longer. Uh, I mean, I'm not a film historian, by the way. Just, I don't, I'm just trying to remember. But my question, my actual question, was what you just said about lame jokes and how we receive it now. Would they have been received as jolly, fine, hilarious things because of the... The in knowing of uh, the personalities involved, I'm guessing, uh, uh, is what I'm meaning. The critics liked it. You know, I mean, it, it's interesting because you've got Gilly Potter arriving at the studio and he was a very famous comedian, but he didn't say anything funny. He said something vaguely funny, but, I don't, you know, he didn't. He did, wasn't given an opportunity to do his act or anything. He was literally just, you know, an, an hour's filming yeah. probably. But, mm. but also there's recordings of his act and if you listen yeah. to it, they're quite lame jokes. He was yeah. massively popular. Though. Yes, I know, amazing. Because he was really like, really? He was, more, he was more of a monologist, though, yeah. wasn't he? Sort yeah, he was like a sort of Ronnie Corbett-type jokes, but just not funny ones. <laughs> well, we, and again, that's something we can, <laughs> we can debate another time, right in the bar later. But it's, it's just interesting, you know, what the zeitgeist is yeah. of, of what's right. I mean, we were just saying before about the accents as well, yeah. but they were typical of mm. middle-class people in broadcast in that period, and yeah. you hear the odd 
London accent coming in of people, and that was carefully monitored because they didn't like those sort of accents. The BBC made a decision in 1923 to use RP as the mm. standard uh, nationwide pronunciation. That's why we still see it is correct. Well, in terms of the humour, I mean, as I said, you know, the character of Guy Bannister, who's really just there to show how enormous broadcasting house is as he gets lost up and down the stairs and in the lifts and thing. I mean, they found him hilarious. I don't find him that funny. No. But... <laughs> I mean, nevertheless, there were plenty of people laughing in this room. There were room. people laughing, but <laughs> well, well, yeah, not necessarily, not quite sure why. perhaps, with the humour. But, I mean, it's interesting to think about yeah. what we were laughing at, really, yes. in terms of this movie. But it's a very enjoyable film. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, oh, we've got oh one, more. one last one. Um, I was just going to say, I, I said this to you at the end of the film, it's the cattiest film I've ever seen. There was so much, like, yeah. snide comments. To every, it was, um, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if that was typical of, I mean... Ghost camera last week was quite polite in, in comparison. But but this is based in the theatrical world, isn't yeah. it? And, and I think that was what they were trying to highlight. You know, all these actors, they all know each other. They've all been in rep at various times in the past. And, they you know, they form all these dislike. you know, as Wolfett and John Gilgood had, you yeah. know, this was very much part of the theatrical world, I guess. And lots of the characters, it doesn't come across in the film, but in the book, you do see that lots of characters have a lot of history. So... Caird and Fleming yeah. have been on tour together. They shared digs together, you know, and Evans, he's been in love with Joan for, who's called yeah. Isabel for ages and all this kind yeah. of stuff. You don't really see, but um, so lots of the kind of snide cutaway comments are actually references to things that we don't actually know about as just as film viewers. But again, it's just creating that atmosphere. Yeah. Of, of, and also the snide remarks about radio drama in general. You know, mm. it's not like theatre, you know. And, and we haven't mentioned, actually, because this play was done as a radio play. This story was done yeah, as a radio yeah. play in 1996 mm. with Bill Nye playing the Leopold Dryden character. <laughs> He's brilliant. It's really, really brilliant. So, and it works so well as a radio drama, I think. I thought it was really good as drama, yeah. yeah. But it is yeah. interesting that actually, I mean, it's sort of a tribute to how snappy this movie is yeah. that actually it's an hour and a half that radio drama and yeah. they cut out all the variety <laughs> stuff yeah <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. yeah that's true yeah. that's true okay thank you very much thank you joe my pleasure thank uh, you for inviting me lawrence has a thing coming up quite soon which should publicize yes. yes. thursday yes i'm giving a talk about quirky quickies for the Westminster Library, the Westminster Library have a whole series of online talks, um, and I'm doing one on Quota Quickies in a week and a half. Can so I also do a plug? Yeah, very yeah. quickly. Plug so, uh, my monthly screening uh, next month, April the fifth, is actually a film made the same year as this one, and also shot by Gunter Kramp. So, you might like to come along to the BFI on fifth April. It's called Little Stranger. Well, a little friend. What is it called? Oh, don't little know. friend. <laughs> it's called Little Friend. Yes. Little something. Little really. friend. And it's shot by Gunter Kramp, and it's really fab. So if you like this film, come and see another film from 1934 <laughs> on the 5th of April at the BFI. I've got nothing to plug. So. Um... Oh, two weeks time. Well, yeah, we'll we'll, 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 two weeks time. <laughs> we're going to be watching The Phantom Light, which is a very early film by Michael Powell, yes. and our guest will be uh, Neil Television's Brand. Neil Brand. He'll be doing a bit of this. There's no piano. He won't be doing any of that. He can't stop himself doing that. He can't help it. It's a reflex. <laughs> Neil is brilliant, so do come down because he he's very good, yeah. really, really good. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Many thanks to Josephine Botting of the Beer Fire for giving up her Sunday for us. And thanks also to the audience who were fantastic. Tell your friends and come again. Our thanks also go to Paul Carstairs and his team at the Kino Cinema for all their help and support. 
In the show notes for this episode, you'll find information about Joe's screenings at the BFI, Lawrence's online talk about quota quickies, all sorts of bits of trivia about the film and the creative team behind it, and also some information about the Blattner phone. That's at KinoQuickies.com, where you can also book tickets for upcoming screenings. Kino Quickies is produced by me, Damdalagi, and our resident quota quickie expert is Dr. Lawrence Napper, and the series is generously supported by Talking Pictures TV, the greatest TV station in the universe. Twiddling the knobs on this occasion was Nick Randall, who's also a podcaster, and there will be a link to his show in the show notes at KinoQuickies.com. But now, press stop if you don't want to hear who kills Sidney Parsons. It gets very spoilery after this, and you have been warned. You'll remember that when we left Broadcasting House, Inspector Gregory had called all the suspects together to reconstruct the murder. One by one, all the main players arrive in the large studio. Even the silly-ass Bannister is there, who now appears to be engaged to Poppy Levine, and Leo has been released from detention to attend. Gregory asks each person to give him their wristwatch. It soon becomes clear what he has planned. Well, we're all here. Can't we get on? Yes, I should think so. First of all, I'll introduce Mr. Weisskopf, who's from Switzerland. And Mr. Weisskopf probably knows more about watches than anybody. As most of you know, the broadcast play during which the murder took place was recorded on a steel tape. There's also recorded a tapping sound, which might be the ticking of a watch. I propose to let Mr. Weisskopf hear each of your watches in turn through this microphone, which is the one Parsons used. Now, we're going up to the control panel. When I switch on the signal light, the detective here will hold each watch in turn up to the microphone. As a police officer holds up each watch to the microphone in turn, the various owners look nervously on. Herbert Evans is looking particularly tense. Up at the control panel, though, Inspector Gregory and our Swiss watch expert are looking very relaxed, not even listening to the watches. As we now learn, Mr Weisskopf is actually another Scotland Yard detective in disguise. It's all been a ruse to panic the murderer into revealing himself. On returning to the studio, Gregory claims that the watch has been identified and now begins the reconstruction in which he himself will act out the movements of the murderer. Now, with Mr Weisskopf's help, I'm going to show you how the crime was committed. I shall impersonate the murderer. Mr Weisskopf here will be the murdered man. Mr Kedd, will you go through your actions exactly as you did on the night of the murder? Mr Ridgewell on the panel will work the light which gives the signal for the death speech. These curtains were drawn on the night of the murder, but now you can see exactly what happened in the corridor. As I'm impersonating the murderer, you'll find me exactly where he went after he'd committed the crime. The assembled players then watch Gregory through the studio window as he recreates the moment in which the fiend attempted to burn the scrap of script and then secretes the gloves in the cupboard. They then go into the corridor to find out the murderer's next move and they find Detective Inspector Gregory of Scotland Yard sitting at the desk at which Rodney Fleming had taken the phone call from his brother. They all look on in shock. Mr Fleming, I propose to put you under arrest for the murder of Sidney Parsons. Oh, you can't do that. I've got a perfectly good alibi. Extremely ingenious one. A six-minute telephone call during which only your brother spoke as he was reading a rewritten scene to you out of your play. Hmm, that's very ingenious of you. Perhaps you could explain exactly why I should want to murder him. You murdered him because he was blackmailing not only Mrs Dryden, but he was blackmailing you. The letter on the back of the script was meant for you, not Dryden. He was bleeding you separately and for the same thing, for a liaison that existed between you and your dear Joan, Mrs Dryden, when you were on tour some years ago in a play called We're on the Rocks. Perhaps this may help you. He produces the theatre programme, which clearly shows Fleming in the cast, but under a different name. Suddenly, Fleming pulls a gun from his pocket. I don't want to hurt anybody, unless perhaps it's you, Evans. Leo, you've been a great friend of mine, and so have you, Julian. And for a detective inspector, you're not so bad. 
but I'm not leaving this building with handcuffs on. Now, the first one of you who moves forward, I'm going to shoot. And I'm going to shoot him dead. He makes a dash for the spiral staircase, the rest of the cast in hot pursuit. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Shots are fired. Look out, this staircase goes to upstairs, what do you think? Fleming finds himself in the control room. Two engineers leap to their feet, but Fleming covers them with his gun. As his pursuers enter the room, a panicking Rodney Fleming opens a door marked Danger High Tension. Rodney, don't go in there! Rodney! Rodney! He is electrocuted on some unseen high-voltage equipment and dies. Another death at Broadcasting House. <laughs> <laughs>